You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. That was still a powerful song. If only the Hebrews had, had prayed that, you wouldn't have Exodus. Um, but they did not pray that. They did not do that. And so we have the book of Exodus. I want you to take your copy of God's Word and go with me to Exodus chapter 1. And while you're doing that, let me say a couple of things. Thank you for all of you who sent uh, cards and notes. I appreciate it very much. God gave me the great opportunity to share with my family, my extended family. I have great nieces and great, great nieces and great, great nephews I'd never met, uh, but they met me and uh, I got to share the gospel with a whole lot of them. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for that. Pray for me this week. Between this morning and next Sunday night, I will preach nine times. So pray for my safety and travel. Pray that I'm able to drag myself up into a pulpit by about the fifth or sixth time uh, I preach so that uh, I do all that God's called me to do. And um, what a tremendous uh, opportunity we have as a congregation. This coming year, we will give more than this church has ever given to missions My prayer is this, more of you will be involved in one of these mission enterprises um, than have ever been involved in this church before. God's calling us to this, and I invite you. In fact, uh, Deb and I are going to, we will head over to Germany. I'll teach in the seminary there. Uh, They took a book that I wrote a number of years ago that is used in the seminaries, and they translated it into German. They've asked what I come and do a seminar on that for pastors. Uh, So I'll be there teaching. I'll be there uh, teaching in the seminary, teaching pastors, and I'll be preaching in one of the German churches and um, other stuff. Just pray for uh, all of that and be involved, if you will. The word orient, when when you use it as a noun, speaks of a geographical location that we all know as Asia. So when you say Orient, you understand we're talking about Asia, Southeast Asia. We understand the countries there. But when you use it as a verb, it is different. It it has the concept of, of facing in a direction. Now, the word Orient literally means east. And uh, the interesting thing is in the tradition of the church, uh, churches were built facing east. When they started to build churches sometime after the the reign of Constantine, uh, they would build a church. In fact, the east is over in this direction. Uh, The pulpit would be in that direction. It would be there, and you would be facing in that direction. You would be looking into uh, the rising of the sun, which was symbolic of the rising of Christ and the coming again of Christ as well. Cemeteries used to be oriented in those positions uh, to where all the graves would face toward the east. Now, all of that tradition is gone, and it's just tradition. There's nothing in Scripture that demands that you do that. However, the Muslims have kept that tradition. It's kind of interesting. They face, and the Jews, they claim they face Jerusalem. I've been in hotels uh, in New York City where there is a red arrow painted in the windowsill to give the direction, which is east. So if there's a Muslim staying in that room, they know which direction to face, and the same thing with a Jew. I've, I've been on airplanes flying into Israel, and I've watched both Muslims and Jews get up in the plane and go at their times of prayer 
and they will orient themselves. In fact, the king of Saudi Arabia has a private jet. It's a 747. Well, would it be anything less? Uh, but he has a room that has a gy- that's gyroscopically built so that that floor in that room automatically is constantly facing east, no matter Mecca, regardless of the direction of the plane. Now, I've shared that with you to ask you this question. What direction is your life facing? Uh, what's the orientation of your life? Especially in days that are difficult, in days that are struggle, uh, full of struggle, in days that are full of tension, in days that are full of challenges, what direction does your life face in? Which direction are you facing in your life right now, because for these Hebrews in Exodus chapter 1, the life that they had known in the land of Goshen had radically changed all within just a matter of moments. Now, you're going to come, and I've got to take a moment. I wanted to do this at the beginning of the service, uh, but I thought it best just to wait and do it here. To help you understand, will you give me a moment to give you a little bit of history here? Because when you get to the first chapter of Exodus and you come to this Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, you ask yourself the question, now, how is that and what does that mean? About the time that Joseph came to power in Egypt, the Hyksos, the Hyksos were ruling Egypt. Have you ever heard of the Hyksos? Um, Well, they were a Semitic people. We used to think that they invaded the land, but now archaeologists gives us a picture that there became so many of them in the land that they took over Lower Egypt, which is the northern part of Egypt. Lower Egypt is in the north. Southern Egypt uh, uh, is Upper Egypt is in the south. It's just the opposite of what you would think if any of what I just said made sense. Well, anyway, they were in Lower Egypt. They were in the north. They came to power, they displaced the Pharaoh, and they took over the throne. And most likely, the reason they were so friendly to Joseph, who was a Semite, was because they too were Semites, though not Hebrews. They were from the area of Canaan, and they were very comfortable because they were shepherds. Joseph and all of the Semitic people were shepherds. The Egyptians hated sheep and hated shepherds, by the way. And so, as they took over, there was this embracing. It was not difficult for this Hyksos to embrace Joseph because he was somewhat of his family. And uh, you had that until uh, Amosis, the, uh, the 18th dynasty, he overthrew. He came from Upper Egypt and overthrew the Hyksos, came to the throne. Uh, Amenhotep I was his son, who was the one who most likely enslaved the Hebrews. So you've got an Egyptian who literally comes to the throne and he thinks to himself, I, I've never, he never heard the story of Joseph. Uh, didn't know. That had all been forgotten by his time. And he comes to this throne and as he does, he's got a fear. And his fear is there are too many of these Hebrews. They're going to do the same thing to us that the Hicksocks did We've got to do something about this situation. Now, there's your historical moment for the day. Uh, You're more informed and I feel better. (laughs) 
So you, you've got that. It begins to make sense. The whole of the book begins to make sense when you understand what is going on here. God brings them into the land. He puts Joseph there because he's going to feed these Jews who are starving. They come down there to get bread. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Go get dad. Go get your families. Come on down here. As you come to Exodus 1, there's 70 of them. God's going to take these 70, and he's going to make a nation of somewhere between 2 and 3 million over this period of 400 years. Well, God's going to cause them to grow. That's what he's promised Abraham back in chapter 12. I'm going to make you a nation. He's going to make them. He brings them into the land of Goshen, which, by the way, means this, to draw near. He brings them into a place to draw near to him. In fact, if you go back into Genesis, Pharaoh was fascinated to meet Jacob because he'd never met a man that old. Jacob was 130 years old when he met uh, Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh was just fascinated meeting a man who had lived that long. And he tells Joseph, give him the best of the land. In other words, give him the land of Goshen. It's perfect for people who have flocks and herds. And in fact, Pharaoh said to Joseph, if you got a couple of really good cousins, give them my, my livestock as well. Let, let them tend my livestock since they're really good at this kind of stuff. Well, they get into the land of Goshen and uh, it's going to turn dark and it's going to turn dark rapidly. And what's going to happen is what God told uh, Abraham back in the 15th chapter of Genesis. So if you've got your Bibles, put your finger there in Exodus chapter 1. Go back to Genesis 15 and look at verse 13 and 14 where God makes a covenant with Abraham and he tells him this, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nations whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now that's the prophecy of what's going to happen. And you say, well, why is God going to leave them down there for 400 years? Because they did not do what this song was just about. They, in fact, they did just the opposite of that now. Keep your finger in Exodus chapter 1. Go to Ezekiel chapter 20. And let me show you what they did and what they would not do. You get to Ezekiel chapter 20 and beginning in verse 5, you read this. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I'm the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey. He says, listen, you think you're in a good place now. He says, you're going to lose your mind when I take you into the land of promise. It's a land that flows with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Verse 7, I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes. Do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me. They were not willing to listen to me. And they did not cast away the detestable thing of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of, of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So now you understand what's happening is this. They are there in the land of Egypt experiencing the judgment of God because they would not worship him, but they turned to the culture and the gods of Egypt. 
Y'all got all that? <clears throat> now, let me show you three things. Uh, because difficult days come, and they are in a difficult situation. We're going to see that. We will get back to Exodus chapter 1 in about 30 minutes. Um, we'll get back there in a moment. Uh, they were in difficult, they were in a difficult place, but they were in a difficult place because they would not listen to God. Um, difficult times, listen, difficult times, you're going to go through difficult times, Christian. You just need to understand that. But difficult times come when we start using worldly wisdom. Now go back to Exodus chapter 1 and look at what's happening here. Exodus chapter 1, this Pharaoh comes and he says in verse 10, come, let us deal wisely with them. Now come and let's put our human knowledge to work. Let's gather around and let's use our human insight and our human wisdom and let's, uh, let's begin to decide what we're going to do with these Hebrews here. Now I'm just going to read to you a couple of passages out of Proverbs I'm going to start probably back here in Proverbs chapter 12. Listen to this. Proverbs 12 verse 4, verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. You get over to Proverbs chapter 14, just a page or two over. In verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. See also America 2022. Uh, Proverbs chapter 29 verse 2 says this, When the righteous increase, people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. Now that's the Bible. That's not Mac Brunson. So if you don't like that, take it up with God, okay? I'm just telling you what the scripture says here. you got a wicked man in Exodus chapter 1. He's ruling, and the people are what? Groaning. They're going to groan, and in fact, their groan is going to become so great that it's going to come up before God and catch his attention. Whenever we begin to deal with human wisdom, which is humanism, which is all, all of higher education in our day, amen, uh, all of higher education, when we deal with that, you run into trouble. Difficult days. Number two, difficult days will not end quickly. They, they don't pass by very fast. You get into a difficult season in your life and you need to understand difficult days don't just go away overnight. This is 400 years for these Hebrews. It really is 400 years before they call out to the Lord. It may have been shorter, but God knew they wouldn't call out, and that's why he tells Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, it's going to be 400 years. Number three, difficult days call for great understanding of truth and not perceptions. Now, did you hear that? Difficult days call us to look at truth and not the perceptions of the culture. Do you remember the friend that came to Job? Let me just take you over to Job chapter 4. Eliphaz, you remember? Eliphaz who came was one of the comforters, which is a, if you don't see Hebrew humor in that, you just don't, 
you don't have a funny bone. Anyway, Eliphaz comes and he looks at Job, who is in all this tremendous agony, loss, and pain. And Eliphaz says to him, this guy who came to help him and encourage him, he said, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Now, I could go on, but let me tell you what Eliphaz is saying. Uh, righteous people don't ever suffer. He'd have made a good health, wealth, and prosperity preacher on television today. <laughs> righteous people don't ever suffer. Uh, they, never, they never get sick. They never have a difficult time. They never struggle. They don't go through, uh, you know, hard days. That's what Eliphaz was saying to Job. Now, God had just said twice about Job, have you seen my man Job? Speaking to Satan, have you seen my man Job? There's nobody else like him on all the earth. He's upright, he's blameless, he turns away from evil, and he fears me. God said that of him several times. So I think God had a better perspective on it than Eliphaz did. So you have to understand, you cannot grasp the latest thing that's being said on television or coming out of Hollywood in difficult days. You need to get a hold of the truth. Well... This Pharaoh comes and he says, I'm going to deal with them in human wisdom. That's the beginning of a lot of problems right there for these Hebrews. Now, I want you to see something in this. God allows us to go through difficult days to reorient us in his direction. Now, I'm going to show you three quick things because I don't have much time and at the end of this service, I'm going to give an invitation like we do. And then we're going to observe the Lord's table. So let me give you these three things rather quickly. Number one, I want you to know that in difficult days, when you orient yourself toward God, you will experience God's care. Even in the midst of difficult days, you will experience His care. Now watch this chapter because it is a digression, not a progression, but a digression. It steps down, 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 and you see Satan behind the entire thing. Now, here comes Pharaoh, and he says this. Let's deal wisely with them. Let's do this. And so they compel the sons, verse 13. Count the number of times he uses the word labor here. The Egyptians compel the sons of Israel to labor rigor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and in all kinds of labor, in all their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. Now, do you get those two verses there? If you were an English teacher, you would grade off on that. <laughs> uh, it's good Hebrew, and it's really good theology, and it helps you grasp these people were under some difficult days. And so what he wanted to do was put them in slavery so that they would be in bondage so that there would be no threat that they would rise up to take away their, his throne, the nation. When they, when, listen, and what happened in the midst of all that? The harder he made their labor, the more babies they had. So my, you know, so what my dad used to say, well, we got married early because there was nothing else to do down on the farm. So, 
You, you see this? They appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. They built for Pharaoh stored cities in Pithom and Ramses. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out. And so they were in dread of the sons of Israel. They just content, God continued to bless them and grow them because God's growing a nation now. God, listen, difficult times never thwarts the purposes of God. So the king now comes, Pharaoh comes in verse 15, and he said to them, uh, speaking to the Hebrew midwives, he said, one whose name was Sephora, the other was named Pua, and he said, you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. This is a second step down. One was to put him in slave labor. The second now is partial birth abortion. Uh, and that's exactly what it was. They're on the birthing stool, and as the baby comes down, as soon as they can tell that it's a male child, most likely they, they would simply cover the mouth of the baby and the nose and smother the child so that when the child was birthed, they would hand it to the mother and say, the baby has been born dead. Now, uh, we've not progressed too far in this country and in the very educated Western world than where they were in that day and time. Life was not sacred. Life was not honored. Life was not seen as a gift from God to these people who were in control and making decisions. And so he said, that's what you do. You put them to death. But the midwives, verse 17, feared God. Now, I think these midwives were Egyptians, personally. Uh, they were assigned to help these Hebrews have their children because that's slave labor. It was good for a while until they started having so many of them. Uh, and um, the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. Now, in that, let me tell you something. I'm just reminded of when they arrested Peter and John in Acts, and they brought them in, and they said, you will not preach in the name of Jesus again. They release them, and what do Peter and John do? They get out on the first street corner they come to, and they stand out there, and they preach in the name of Jesus. They go out and they arrest them again and bring them in and said, you didn't understand us. And Peter says, no, you don't understand. Uh, there is a law that is higher than the law of man. We must do what God tells us rather than man. You don't know what restraint I have. You have no clue. There's so many things I want to be saying, but boy, I'm so proud of myself at this point. Hold on to it, old boy. Hold on to it. They feared God. They were going to do what was right. They were going to do what God had called them to do. What they, they had seen this uh, evidently in the lives of some of these Hebrews. They had seen the worship of the true God, and they'd come to believe in him. So the king of Egypt called these midwives, verse 18, uh, called them back in and said, what, what, what are you doing? Uh, you know, you're letting these boys live. So these midwives say to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. They literally, literally what they said was this, listen, these Hebrew women are so strong. You remember the old Alka-Seltzer commercial, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. There you go. Boom. They got the baby there before we even show up. 
They're so strong, these women have worked, they've labored so, that labor for them is not very hard at all. And before we can get there, the child is born. So now, you come to the third step down, which is infanticide. The whole of Exodus begins in really what is one of the first holocausts. We're going to annihilate these Jews. You can follow it from there all the way to the book of Esther with Haman, where he is going to have all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire put to death. Uh, You can follow it from there to Bethlehem when Christ is born, when Herod wants to put to death all of the males born into that area up to about three years of age. You can follow it from there through history all the way to the Third Reich, to Adolf Hitler, where the final solution was kill every Jew we can possibly kill. All the way to the anti-Semitism of our day. It has gone through history. You see it in its beginning stages right here. So we're told that he is going to Tell them just to drown all the male children. But before you get to that, look at this. There's an interesting statement here. Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty because of the midwives. They feared God and and he established households for them. Now, that's kind of interesting. And I want you to look at it because of their obedience in verse 20. We're told that the people multiplied and became mighty. Because of the obedience of two women, who, by the way, their name makes the book, we don't have a clue really who this Pharaoh is. Do you see how God stands humanity up on its head? We, we clamor to know who is the king, who is the queen, who is the prime minister, who is the president, who is the senator, who is the head guy in charge. And we put importance there. The Word of God never puts down the name of this Pharaoh. But he gets two people that we would consider to be extremely insignificant, and he says, they make the book. They make the book. Boy, I wish I were Pentecostal just every once in a second or two. Man, what what an incredible God we have at who he pays. You learn to read scripture like this, folks. Notice things like that. And so he was good to the midwives and the people because of these two women whose names make the book that we would have never paid any attention to, that we would have said they have a very menial blue-collar job. They just are midwives. Because of their obedience to God, the entire nation of God's people are blessed. Now, you think you're not important. You're here this morning, and you feel like you're, you're, the, you're the eighth string quarterback for Alabama, and you cannot be important because there's so many great guys ahead of you, or Auburn, or Clemson, you know, wherever. You know, you, you, you've got so many. I'm not important. I don't matter. Nobody knows me. Nobody sees me. I've had mechanics be a blessing of God in my life. I've had plumbers really be a blessing of God in my life. I've known Christian plumbers and Christian electricians and Christian carpenters and Christian mechanics and, um, you know, that were just as important to me in specific moments as anybody else. 
never discount who you are in Jesus Christ. If you do your work as unto the Lord, the Lord will bless people through your work. Now, do y'all have that? I want you to walk out of here thinking that today. That regardless of who I am and how well known I am, listen, if you will do your work for the Lord in obedience, there will be opportunity that God will take to bless people every day through you. Well, that's what happens. They bless these two women. They bless the entire nation. But then look, in verse 21, because the midwives feared God, they came to worship him. They feared him. They stood in awe of him. He established households for them. Now, there are some theologians that say that these two women, and I don't know how they figure this, but these two women uh, were unable to conceive, and God opened their wombs in the establishment. Well, possible. I, I don't know how God did it, but God established. He built. The word literally means to build, to make to perform, to put together. He built, he established their homes in some way because they feared God. God caused their homes to be established, to be secure, to be stable, uh, to know the blessing of God in a unique way. Now, listen, let me tell you, do you understand that God wants to do that with our families? You've been brought into a family that we call Valleydale. This is a family of people here. Uh, we call ourselves a lot of things, an assembly, a church, you know, a gathering. We're a family. We all, listen, we've all been birthed into the same family through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And because God has put you into this fellowship, into this family, God intends for you and your family to be a blessing to one another. I don't know if you read this week, and you're going to have to give it a little time. I find that a lot of these statistics kind of end up not being near as dramatic as they are when they're released. But Pew released a poll this past week saying that the church in America is in faster decline than we realized. Well, maybe so. I'm not so sure about that, but I want to tell you this. We are every day less and less welcome in the world in which we live. We are less and less welcome in the culture in which we live and work. We are less and less welcome in the classrooms where we sit and in the offices where we carry out our daily routine. I want to tell you something. What you've got is you've got Jesus Christ and each other, brothers and sisters. And in this family here, we should work to bless one another's families. So that my family becomes a blessing to your family. Your family becomes a blessing to my family. Because I want to just let you in on something. The world out there is not going to love you the way your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ will. You need to orient yourself in difficult days. And you begin to see the care of God. Let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this. You need in difficult days to orient yourself toward God. Face Him. Face His direction. And you'll experience His deliverance. 
Now you come down to verse 22, and here's that third step down. Pharaoh commanded infanticide. He commanded all of his people. Now he doesn't turn to just these two women who are midwives. He turns to the entire people, and he says, listen, any of these Hebrew babies that are male, free game to anybody, you can put them to death. Take them and throw them in the Nile. He says that. He releases that to the entire. It's exactly what Haman was going to do in the entire Persian empire. He was going to set every nation free to kill a Jew. There are countries today that people live in where murder is permissible if it is a Christian. We abhor that. We abhor the thoughts of putting somebody to death because they're a Muslim or a Buddhist or something like that. Uh, we'd absolutely say, no, that's not at all what the Word of God tells us to do. But there are nations today. In fact, I, I'm going to give you a story at the end of this sermon. I, was, I happened to be in it. We had to have armed guards with us. There were four of us, uh, five of us, and... Um, we had to keep an armed guard with us the entire time. Because in that country, and especially in certain places, it was free reign. Kill a Christian, get a pat on the back. Be celebrated as a hero. And so that's where they were. They came to that, and it was a step down. Now, do you see Satan anywhere in all of this? Do you know what Jesus said in John chapter 8? He says, he is a murderer from the beginning. Satan is all over this. And in this whole, listen, this whole digression here, we're going to put them in, in chain. We're going to make them slave labor. We're then going to take their male children and kill them in a partial birth abortion act. And then finally, we're just going to, they're born now. We're just going to have an infanticide and we're just going to kill all the male children. And yet in the midst of that, you see the deliverance of God, and you only get one story. I don't know how many times this was repeated. I don't know how many children God saved, but I want to tell you, we get just one story here, and that's the story of Moses and how God is going to deliver him. And you say, Pastor, why would God let something like this happen? Everybody wants to know, why, why, why would God let something so horrible take place well, this is what these people had basically chosen. And they ended up choosing not to worship God. And in not worshiping God, they opened themselves up to the wisdom of man. What you see played out here is the wisdom of man. This is the way man thinks. And yet God had to put them in a difficult situation so he could reorient them to himself. I want you to listen to what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It was called Israel's Cry and God's Answer. And I want you to listen to this now. They were part of the Egyptian nation and they began to forget their separate origin. Did you get that? They had been in Egypt so long they had forgotten that they were Jews. In all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized. Sounds like a lot of Christians and church members today in our culture. 
To a large degree, they begin to adopt the superstitions, idolatries, and iniquities of Egypt. And these things clung to them in latter years to such a terrible extent that we can easily imagine that their hearts must have turned aside very much toward the sins of Egypt. Uh, yet all the while, God was resolved to bring them out of that evil connection. Uh, they must be a separate people. They could not be Egyptians, nor live permanently like Egyptians, for Jehovah had chosen them for himself, and he meant to make an abiding difference in Israel, not in Egypt. Boy, that's good stuff. I can tell y'all are sitting there in just shock. You're so quiet. Did you get what Spurgeon is saying? God had to allow these things to happen to these Hebrews so that the Hebrews would turn and cry out to him. As you see by the end of this chapter, they cry out to the Lord. They reorient themselves toward God and away from all of these Egyptian idols. But listen, let me tell you, it's going to be hard getting Egypt out of them. That's the golden calf. We'll get to that. That's all these things that happen along the way in that 40 years of wandering until that whole generation dies out and you've got a new generation that did not grow up in Egypt. Let me give you the third thing because I'm a minute over now. Here we go. The last thing is this. You reorient yourself toward Christ and you see the beauty of redemption in the midst of of the ugliness of destruction. What's being destroyed here are lives. Lives are being destroyed. It's amazing to me that we have half the nation who thinks that in any kind of abortion, nothing happens to anything. They never see it as life. Um, what's happening here is the loss of life. Uh, lives are being destroyed. We don't know how many they killed. We don't know how many God rescued and saved. But you get now into the life of Moses. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she decided to save him. Heaven help him if that had been an ugly baby. <laughs> Scripture is funny at times, isn't it? Listen, she saw that he was beautiful. She hid him for three months. Now, let me tell you, we are told three times, once in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament, that Moses was beautiful. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that he was beautiful. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his sermon, literally, Deacon Stephen is preaching to all the religious leaders. I want you to listen to what it says about Moses. It's an interesting statement here. He's saying that he's beautiful. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. Now, the word can mean appearance, beauty and appearance, attractiveness, uh, a beauty of, uh, of a baby. It can also be internal to where it means there was something deep within the the soul of this child that was attractive, that was beautiful, that they could look at that. What parent doesn't look at their child and think, ah, this is a special child. Scripture says three times this baby was beautiful. Now that's amazing to me that in the midst of the ugliness that's going on of slavery, of rigorous labor, of hardship, 
of loss of everything in life, and then the losing of little babies, the loss of little In the ugliness of all of that, it, for those who reoriented their lives and looked toward God, God opened up the beautiful and showed them the beautiful in the midst of the ugly. Sometimes I have to fuss at myself because all I see is the ugly. And I fail to see what God is doing. And so many places when, when I begin to focus on what God is doing, I begin to see the beautiful. A number of years ago, I was in North Africa. I was in a country where I'd shared with you. A God there took us back. Missionary there took us back. And showed us something that is not a tourist attraction, not a tourist stop, not anything or anywhere where tourists basically go. But took us back and showed us an arena, a Roman arena, approximately 2,000 years old. And began to tell the story that it was in that arena that a young mother by the name of Perpetua and her friend who had been her slave, Felicitas, who was expecting a baby at the time, that the two of them were killed in that arena for their faith in Jesus Christ. Perpetua came from a noble family, a wealthy family. And because of her commitment to Jesus Christ, the Romans threw her in prison. And the same thing with Felicitas. Now, here's the interesting thing. The master now and the slave were no longer master and slave. They had become sisters in Jesus Christ. And together they went into prison. And in prison, Perpetua gave her baby to her father to keep. And he would bring the child down there several times a day for her to nurse the baby. Felicitas was expecting a child uh, her child, and, and so they waited until her child was born because the Romans did not want to look inhumane having people killed while they were expecting a child. So every day, Perpetua's father would come and would plead for her to renounce her faith in Jesus Christ. He just pled with, he said, if you don't do it for yourself, do it for me. And if you won't do it for me, please do it for your child here. You're going to die and you're going to leave this baby. Don't you want to see your child grow up? Yes, daddy, I do. But I cannot renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. Felicitas had her baby. Two days after she gave birth, they took the two women and they put them in the arena and they turned loose a wild bull who gored Felicitas, and picked up Perpetua and threw her up in, the down, up in the air and she landed on her back. She was able to get up and pull herself together to crawl over and to begin to care for Felicitas. And it so moved the crowd that the crowd began to boo and the Romans had to do something quickly. Let's kill them quickly. So they sent out two gladiators one to go on and kill Felicitas, and the other to kill Perpetua. And there, the one to kill Perpetua was brand new. He had never killed before. He had only been trained. He had never done this. And all he could do was stab at her and wound her and hurt her 
but he never knew how to kill her until Perpetua reached out and grabbed the end of his sword and brought it to her throat and said, it's okay. She lived, both of those women being abused by the Roman soldiers, in dirt, starved, in filth, And yet every day as her father would bring the baby there for her to nurse, he would look at her and say, look at what you're living in. You don't have to do this. Only to hear Perpetua say, this is the most beautiful place on earth. Because when you're oriented toward God and Christ, even in the ugliest of days, There's the beauty of God. Let's stand. We live in some very difficult, highly unusual, and most of the time, ugly days. The beauty in this world is a God who came from out of this world into this world to save us. Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Him as Lord and Savior, I pray that through the preaching of this word, God's speaking to your heart. And you're ready to make a decision to give your heart and your life to Him, to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. And I'm going to stand right here at the front. Maybe you're here this morning and you long to be a part of this fellowship, this family. It is a wonderful family. It is a family that cares for one another, by the way. It is a family. It is a church where people love and care for one another. I can't think of a better church to recommend to you than Valleydale Church. I love it. And I'm thankful that it is my church. And I invite you to come and be a part of the church that meets here. Be a part of the family of God that's here. But whatever God's calling you to do, would you do it now? Father, in these moments, would you draw as only you can draw? Would you bring as only you can bring those? Lord, I've spoken to their heads, but only you can impress this word upon their heart. And I pray that you do that now. And I pray it in Jesus' name. You come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.